welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. And today on the show, we're continuing our mini-series through the novels of the Malazan Empire by Ian Cameron Esselmont. Um, today, we're tackling Return of the Crimson Guard. And uh, with me is uh, Malazan YouTuber Iskar Jarak. Welcome back to the show. Pete, thanks for having me. And uh, our Night of Knives episode went out early up in 2021, and we're excited to continue onward talking about uh, a, a kind of more, I was going to say more substantial work, but I think that what I mean, mean, maybe mean is it's much larger, and it's, you know, the first one's kind of, Night of Knives is kind of positioned as a prequel in a way, where this is obviously a bit different, it happens later on, so in some ways I kind of view it as, um, Esselmont kind of taking a bigger step out in a way. And my understanding was it's actually written before Night of Knives and written oh. almost contemporaneously with Gardens of the Moon. Huh. Yeah, that is that. my that that is my understanding. Um so but that brings me to I first read this book when I was hiking. Actually, I had I took a paperback with me and enjoyed nice. enjoyed the book a great deal. And uh I just actually re-listened to it on audiobook for the first time and it's been about a few years. So uh I had a great time rereading the book, and I'm sure we'll talk all about it. But Iskar, why don't you tell me when you first read it, and uh, then let's get into it. What you think of the book returning to it? Yeah, I uh, I read it first time around. This is probably many, uh, many years ago, and actually that's the only time I read it. So I went and read the main uh, 10 Book of the Fallen twice, and then I realized that there was this whole other series of books. And so I I jumped into that, and then I needed time to, uh, to decompress before I started my third reread about a year and a half or two years ago and uh and so this is only my second time dump, jumping back into uh to return to the crimson guard and i i absolutely love it i know it's one of the most beloved of the of the ice books but i think it's a lot of fun me too i think it's a lot of fun and um yeah um i know i almost don't know how to get into it but i will say this here's here's one thought i had and i i do think i'll actually say some negative stuff about the book throughout the show yeah but but i do really 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 like the book i think so i it's just an absolute blast of a time for me to read this book but has has some iconic characters it has a lot of action so there's a lot to like but i think there's also things to point out a lot of iconic characters doing a lot of fun stuff and um by the way we're gonna spoil the book so and we're also going to spoil i believe what nine of the main books right yeah there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah, I would generally, you know, we're not going past this in the Esselmont stuff, but, you know, be a bit leery. It's just your own discretion, Lister. Anyway, I will say this, though, to get back on track. Yeah. A lot of plot lines in the book. A bit, a bit overstuffed, maybe, I feel, you know, a lot going on in this novel here, you know? Yeah, and I, I thought about a couple of the plot lines, like, what is this stuff doing in here? And I couldn't remember exactly what the end game was with, with some of them, especially the the Rillish stuff and the Wiccan Plains mm, stuff. Mm. And I was going, you know, what is this stuff? And then I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, later on I realized, obviously, but it was a lot of moving parts in this one for sure. And the thing is, I like almost all of it. It's not like there's parts that I'm like, man, I hate this. I wish this wasn't here. Like, I don't mind doing any of it, but it's just like, you know, it's a it's a somewhat small book. I don't know. Not it's it's like 600 pages ish, right? Yeah. Um, and like just a lot, lot going on, lot going on. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's kind of like the the entree where Night of Knives was kind of like the appetizer. There was just a little bit uh, more. It was more self-contained or it was more contained because you're riding shotgun with basically Kiska and Temper the whole time. And then there's kind of 
three layers, but that's basically it. And so it's it's easy to get your mind wrapped around and kind of ease in. This was definitely a bigger stab at it. Yeah, definitely. But it's also a major stab in a lot of ways at Esselmont coming to tackle some of his own characters, right? Because obviously in Night of Knives, although Kiska and Tepper are there, it's also a lot about these characters we already met already. And of course, when we're going to talk about characters that Esselmont originates, we're going to talk about the boy, Kyle. Um, <laughs> so uh, what do you think of Kyle and what did you think about tuning back in? My understanding is I've only have also re- I've also read Stonewielder is that Kyle is a, a bigger through line through some of these other Esselmont books. Yeah, he's uh, he's kind of like, well, I guess somebody said that that Kiska was like the female Crocus and then Kyle's like Crocus with a mustache. But that's kind <laughs> of um, how how, I, you know, the vibe I get is he's kind of like that adolescent. He's going through his whole coming of age, like realizing the whole, you know, wider world and coming out of his kind of sheltered tribal existence, right? And learning about magic and learning about uh, all these warring factions and the Crimson Guard, which he kind of just, you know, bumbled his way into in some ways. And so, but um, I love him. I know some people are like annoyed by him in the same way that I think people are annoyed by Kiska and Crocus, but uh, I'm a sucker for him. I, I think this is one of the best you know, kind of uh, completions or or presentations of that young adolescent coming of age. I think he pulls it off the best. Uh, I agree. I enjoy Kyle. I enjoy his, I enjoy the wind stuff. Maybe I'm just like a sucker, but I just like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's like the Avatar, the last airbender in me, but just like the wind or just we're doing elements, you know, just yeah. I'm in the tank for it. You know, it's very fun. That opening chapter with him is so great. I will say this, though, about Kyle. Sometimes a recurring issue for me is that like it's we're never in the shoes of people that actually are who the plot's driven by. Do you know what I mean? It's always we're in the shoes of the person next to the person who's driving the plot. Do you know what I mean? Right. Which I think sometimes is really effective, and there's a lot of good reasons. You can see his animator break essay, Erickson's, and you know there's a lot, a lot of different perspectives on who to put the point of view in. But definitely sometimes around Kyle, I'm like, you know, I don't know. Is this the guy? You know? But he, I, I like him a lot. He's a nice character. I enjoy following him. I like it because he's endearing, you know, and usually you're with these kind of naive, dumb, like all the poor guy kind of characters. So you're somewhat sympathetic to them. And they're kind of wholesome and naturey, worshiping, you know, the land spirits and whatever and wind and stuff. And so, yeah. you, you know, it kind of it. I think it does speak to some of the bigger themes about just like unreliable history. And so you're like riding with this totally naive person. And, it, um, you know, that's kind of how the reveals work, I feel like, in the books is that you you're you're figuring it out right alongside the character and that's just kind of how they the approach they took no definitely because it's usually like you have someone there who's in some ways an audience surrogate that needs to find out all this information right. and i especially think in sequences so uh, if we're just free foreman we're free foreman there's this you know there's this sequence where not a sequence the middle half of kyle's story goes with travel traveler erica they encounter calor they, yeah. they when they're going to rescue Kaz and all this junk yeah and like you know, they're there and then Shadow Throne's there for a bit. And, and I'm like, why is why? Like, I don't care about Kyle right now. Do you mean like, aren't I aren't the story I'm interested in is the story of these other characters? Do you mean? Yeah. And like, I don't know why this is the dude. Do you mean? So I guess sometimes I just feel frustrated by that is all. But gotcha. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because he has the like impetus to uh, to go 
you know, find out what happened because his homie Stoop gets killed or whatever. But uh, yeah. you're definitely more engaged trying to figure out what's going on with this traveler guy who's this uh, giant. I even love how like the um, the lost brothers or cousins or whatever are kind of like making fun of Kyle the whole time for being naive. They're like, dude, you just figured this out. They're such great sidekicks. <laughs> That's the gold for, uh, you know, like a, a kind of buddy cop type of uh, little sideshow if they wanted to do a TV series, do some Lost Brothers TV show. Yeah, I liked that. Yeah. And then they encounter Calor there and um, Calor kills Erico Rip. Very <laughs> sad. Um, you know, Erico, short screen time, but chill, chill ass, dude. It's um, it's crazy that he only took up, you know, just like one book or even just part of one book because he kind of hits hard, almost hits those kind of like uh, beak feels in a way. Yeah, it just evokes this big, like sad dude. He's like the last of the race, all this type of stuff that just gets to you, you know? Yeah. And uh, so what do you make of Calor showing up? It sounded like you had uh, some Calor based, a little Calor cameo, if you will. Yeah, Calor shows up and uh, I thought it was just really interesting because you get that first little peek at Jackaruku, which kind of harkens back to some of the stuff that we saw, like prologue of Memories of Ice, even, you know, this is like very yeah, early yeah. Calor stuff. And so um, he, he kind of reaps his revenge. And this is all part and parcel of like the, you know, the thrust of what motivates the whole main series is that you get this kind of consequence of people trying to take Calor down. I mean, that's basically what the whole Crippled God arc is, right, is that uh, people were trying to take him out and that's how this alien god shows up and ends up causing all the trouble that we see in in the book of the fallen yeah yeah i don't know i really i and and i I mean yeah it's interesting to really think about him as the impetus for everything in that way I, I think there's an argument that he's kind of like the through line of the of the Book of the Fallen, right? Because if it's about chaos and all that stuff, then uh, then the reason why they're dealing with that is, again, because you had these folks down in Jakaruku who are like, we got to put an end to this crazy, um, you know, dictator, basically. And what's, you know, I know this isn't about the main series, but part of me is really thinking that if like the impetus of it is this act by these mages to like destroy a kingdom, which is undoubtedly cruel and bad, right? Like a dictatorship, right? And this empire, if like to to essentially just destroy it through war and fury to contrast that with the ending, you know, and how, man, I'm just sorry, I'm kind of spinning over here. I just feel like really thinking about the the origin, mm. Mm, man, do you, are, you, are you vibing with what I'm saying or am I, yeah, I know no, I'm basically definitely. on. I don't, I don't know how much we want to ruin for everyone. That's the the part that scares me, you know, is like, I don't want people who haven't finished the main books to totally ruin it. All right, we're spoiling the main books. Finish the main 10 and then listen to the show. <laughs> no, we can't, do, we can't do that. We can't do that. So what we <sighs> All right, let's stick to the course. You yep. you should, yeah. All right, let's stick to the course. We're not going to spoil the main 10, but we should get to this next time we see Calor. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, we're whew, so derailed. Um. Yeah, so, man, and then they find Kaz, but we're, we're kind of jumping around. So uh, let's talk about the Crimson Guard in the room, if you will, uh, yeah. you know, to get us back on track to this book. Um, we meet the Crimson Guard in a lot of different ways, a lot of different members of the Crimson Guard. And uh, what do you make of them? What do you think of these? Because they're somewhat in the main series, uh, but not as much, I would say. They're kind of only mentioned primarily. Yeah, or like a side like a side bit of the main series, right? Like I love me some iron bars, and I think that is a, a you know, huge piece of the book that I absolutely loved. I loved seeing him kind of take command 
of the ship, take that spear through the chest and just kind of getting that internal monologue. I love seeing him with the Segula, right? Mm. Um, I, I think there was like a lot of uh, just like kind of badassery, like laser fireball stuff to appreciate about the Crimson Guard part of this book. I fully agree. The, uh, the Segula fight is absolutely a ton of fun. That was pretty good. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just love bars because he's just such a force to be reckoned with. And just so, you know, funny, I think that uh, it makes me love the the Segula, which is a huge part of the the ice books. I think even a bigger part than what you get out of the uh, out of the main 10. And so, you know, for me, I'm a sucker for that stuff, because, again, that's the kind of uh, crazy badasses that that everybody just loves. It's like made for TV. Yeah, I feel like that stuff is the type of thing where you can like, I don't know, in general, I think you can really tell a lot of this stuff comes from a game world or a game setting in a way, yeah. you know, and especially the Segula Island and like this type of stuff and encountering them. It's like, you know, just such like a, oh yeah, there's this island. It's just like such a zone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that there's like a sh- setting up a whole through line for all kinds of stuff. You know, you're just like, whoa, there's this boat and there's like 25 of these Segula on there. And like, what were they even doing? And they just bail out. You know what I mean? And so there's yeah. like actually a lot of stuff that that still hasn't totally paid off. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to see where we go. And of course, Iron Bars ends up over at Stormwall, which will be followed up with later. And some of the best art actually out there is that iron bars, I think, on the Stormwall painting, which was awesome. I wish I knew who made it, but don't Google it unless you've read the books. Yeah, maybe I'll save it for after our stone to read. But that brings us to some of the other members of the Crimson Guard we meet. We meet uh, Greymane. Of course, we meet Skinner and the bad the bad crew. Yep. Um, um, we meet Cowl, who's like the, the kind of dancer of the Crimson Guard, maybe. Yeah, and the veils, but yeah. I like a shimmer, you know, I'm a huge fan of shimmer and, and she's like a really awesome character. And, um, you know, I, I think she is, it's interesting because there's no real good guys. And I think we talked about this before in one of our, in one of our chats, but you know, there's, um, on the one hand, there's like people in the empire that you like, and then there's this like crimson guard, but then you're like, are these guys the ones that are sticking up for the, the little guys, but then they got bad guys like, you know, Skinner and Cal, but shimmer is one of the ones here. Like, Oh my gosh, maybe these are the scrappy underdogs that we're that we're rooting for definitely i mean if you really try and strip it down i mean there's these personal elements of who we actually like but it's like okay well a mercenary company is trying to topple like it's like totally i don't know what'd you think of the return to unta like when they um come back they're pushing through all that stuff and then yeah that was pretty gnarly oh and that's the type of stuff um I don't know, man. I just think we have a comment. We're going to read about it later. But in some ways, I think Esselmont's, I just enjoy reading Esselmont's action much more than Erickson's, you know? Definitely fast paced. I, I like it. That's why I say a lot of fun, you know, because it's just, uh, and you get all these different kind of angles. Like, again, it has like, it smacks of being ready for or more easily adaptable, maybe. Like, you don't have to really do a lot of guessing of like, how would you adapt something like a return of the Crimson Guard? It would be pretty easy, I think, to to kind of storyboard that out for TV. But I will say this and, you know, take this in whatever way you want. I feel like Erickson in some ways is more writing about violence than he is writing about action. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
maybe it's just coming off some of those Midnight Tides magic battles. I mean, you know, in general, like when people are killing each other, it's generally a terrible and unfun affair in the main series. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, Yeah. It's more about the horrors of war. It's kind of more like an apocalypse now type of commentary on on all that stuff versus this is more plot driven action of like uh, getting from A to B in terms of the, the overall arc of the story. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say there's like if you looked at a body count or whatever measure, I, I right. feel like books are they're both pretty, you know, that. But I wouldn't really call this book very violent. Do you know what I mean? Or very graphic, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's some pretty gnarly parts with iron bars and you know the avowed being um, a little more indestructible or whatever but it's not it doesn't seem as graphic or you know yeah but I I guess it just doesn't leave that impression on me do you mean like I feel like after I walk away from some of the Erickson violence I'm like Christ fucking what was that yeah I think it's much more uh, philosophical versus just part of of the story so it doesn't have that deep feel or I didn't walk away with that kind of heavy feeling when I put down uh, Return of the Crimson Guard this time it kind of reads fast you don't have to like put it down and go oh my gosh you know what I mean I I agree I agree so but let's get back to the Crimson Guard and I wonder what you make of their vow and this eternal vow I was really trying to bite into it a little bit more this time this vow that they shall, you know, you know, you know, you know, the value you read the book. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, they're like, you know, the, the kind of super committed, like, you know, people who, who are kind of the ride or die from day one. And then these other newer inductees who just are kind of like, yeah, we take the word for it and are going off the basis of the, the reputation. But it's interesting because they have the vow and then you have people like Bars and Skinner. And I think when they first came into the harbor and until they're like, you know, is it even relevant? Like these people don't even want to throw off the yoke of, imperial rule and all that stuff anymore and like have we outlived our vow and so they're like no backing out right they're obviously like uh, ride or die for the cause but then at the same time like the need or you know the whole like geopolitics have changed from from the time when they they originally did that the emperor's not even there Lacine's already on shaky ground these other countries are already like bailing out so it's just a interesting juxtaposition it kind of harkens back to the stuff that we saw I think in Gardens of the Moon where you have these like you know ridiculous ridiculous wars that just go on forever, um, even though the world has already kind of moved on. No, it just goes on forever. And I think that's what the phrase eternal return is about, right? I mean, it's just like Christ. Like, I know this is not the answer, but like in some ways, like, can they not let go? Do you mean, is this fundamentally the flaw? Do you mean, and in some ways you could ask, are they even still holding on? Because a lot of these people are just like, yeah, well, we live over here and do other stuff now. Do you mean, and I know it's because, you know, I know they all broke up, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I'm trying to chew more on like, what really is uniting these people? Do you yeah, mean exactly. these guard? What no, what remains of the guard besides just you know some people who took an oath? You know, totally. And I think that that you're onto something there. And uh, and I think that that's why even they're questioning within themselves. They were like, yeah, what was Skinner doing to get that armor? Like he's committed to the vow, but what else is he committed to? Yeah, exactly. Right. All right, let's turn to some of our eyes to some of the other uh, major plot lines in the book. What do you think? Should we do uh, Malik Rell or do like Quan Tali and the Italian League and Lee Hong? 
I say we got to do Malik Rell. I'm a fan of him in this book or not a fan of him as a person, but, uh, you know, you got to appreciate that. I'm a huge fan. It made me, although I haven't read the rest of it, and I I don't know if I jumped to it if it came out today, but it made me stoked to read the gist all because this, all this Malik Rell stuff's a blast. Having a great time. Obviously, like, fuck the dude, right? Blah, blah. But like, you know, just a great time reading this. And he's just, you know, it's fun to be around him, you know? He's just a conniver, you know, and you can't deny the effort of what he does you don't want to go chill and have beers with them obviously it's not that kind of like you like him as a person right hey, but I, like- I would have i would have beers with them you know i wouldn't <laughs> like I wouldn't start a business with him or something, you know, but, you know, I would have a beer. Yeah. I mean, he just, uh, you know, he's just a lot smarter, I think, than what you saw in Deadhouse Gates. He learned his lesson. I love how he's kind of using Corbolo Dom's arrogance against him and, you know, just totally setting him up to be the fall guy and whatever and just moving behind the scenes. He seems really prescient. Like we see Bug right through him. And like you always kind of wonder, like, what's what's up with the relation and you see it's not like a friendly thing like it was a reluctant thing he's being compelled right and he's bitter about it and stuff so i just love that whole thing all right i got caught up on it i don't think i would have a beer with him i take back my state <laughs> we accept I just, your I, apology uh, yeah i just don't think i'm thinking about it i actually don't think it's yeah i don't think it's good vibes now back to the actual point i agree and i love the corblo dom stuff and mm. it, you know his seeing him in corblo dom is great you know just great stuff but i just love being him around and i especially love the scene where uh the crimson guard have come to unta and then he's there and he's like hey guys i'm your new servant i love you and then the crimson guard bounce and he's like guys that was crazy the crimson guard were here i'm your servant i love you (laughs) you know yeah he just plays whatever side he's just such an opportunist he's just like you know and he just tries to ride the wave and the current and turn it to his advantage and he's just uh I, I, you know, you can't deny that the dude is a straight up schemer. Do you think he's like too strong, though? Do you think like he's just always knows the right thing? And do you think that sometimes loses interest? No, because I think that he still gets caught off guard. And there's times when, you know, folks like make little comments and he's like, yeah, I don't know if this person was like an idiot or I forget what his uh, his little like servant mage helper guy was, but like kind of makes a couple uh, snide comments and same with the, the person who comes to read the tiles for him, I think. And so I I still think that there's stuff we might find out or, or, you know, we haven't seen the end that it might not be a full, complete success story by the end of of the time they're done writing about this guy. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. Yeah, I don't don't know. I'd have to think about it. I wonder I wonder what's really dry. And I guess we'll see when the gist all comes out. I wonder what's really driving them to tackle, you know, him. Because in some ways, part of me feels like what hasn't already been said about this dude? Do you know what I mean? Well, what I'm really worried about, honestly, and have deep anxiety about is that they're going to try and uh, make him a little bit more sympathetic, right? That that you're going to find out that, you know, he's got this kind of more altruistic end game in mind and that all this stuff was like a means to an end and there's this bigger thing and I'm going to be um, so upset because I really just want to be able to feel content hating this guy. But, uh, you know, as a person, but but it will be interesting to explore that backstory. Yeah, he abolishes the empire, starts doing all this stuff, but I don't know, that'd be pretty uncharacteristic in a way. So it, you don't have a track record of getting a lot of happy endings, so no, not really, but it would be more Listen, now we can't just speculate with what's going on with the gist all, but I love the Malik Rell stuff in this book. I think it's a blast. And um 
Yeah. And that kind of brings us to the other guys, right? The stuff outside of Lee Hang and just the whole thing with the old guard, because he kind of uses that as this way to undermine Lacine. And so through that, we get all this old guard stuff that I thought was cool just to even be able to see those guys who are like total badasses at command and strategy and all that stuff. Yeah. What do you think of the old guard? It, it, it was it was interesting because part of me, you know, I'm just a sucker for, you know, that's kind of well, at least for me, because I read the Book of the Fallen first and then I came to the Esselmont stuff second that that's kind of the stuff you hope for coming in. Right. Is that you're going to see some of that lore and whatever fleshed out and the backstory and everything. And you get that and you get to see like, OK, Choss is you know, super G'd up at, at military strategy that Amaron was this guy who did the whole stuff with the talons and the super crazy. And we get to see talk the, the elder and all these legendary figures. But then at the same time, you kind of see the darker side of those folks and like the, the effect of what empire does. And they are just kind of win at all costs. And we'll, I think even Choss says at one point, like we'll rewrite the history once we win, but for now we're just going to win. Yeah, I, I agree. I, yeah, I, agree with most most of what you said especially that thing about choss yeah I, I guess i feel a little torn because sometimes i think and erickson does this as well here's something that gets under my skin it's like sometimes i think we i'm not that invested in some of these characters and this goes for a lot of the crimson guard people too you know when you talk about cal or mm. no no i know we start meeting these characters getting to know, know them but a lot of the times our introduction and a lot of what we know is just people ex- other people being right. like urko crust is a big deal you know yeah. that urko it's crazy what he did <laughs> everyone everyone is whispering about how crazy urko and like you know this happens a lot we hear a lot of people talking about how big of a deal someone else is you yeah. know Yep. And I get that they're trying to establish the stakes and this p- people's position in the world, but sometimes it just leaves me not feeling really that invested in some of these characters, you know? Like, do I care that much about Urko Crust? No. Do you know what I mean? I just, <laughs> yeah. like, like, I don't, I'm, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. I, like, I understand his role in the history. And to an extent, I feel this way about the Emperor and Cotillion as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, we know them a bit, but I also feel like I've spent more time hearing about how great they were than actually seeing or getting to know them or feeling that they're great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think there's an element of that. And I think that you, uh, you know, like, I'm a sucker for that kind of um, just, the the alluding to how badass they are and i fall victim to to that stuff but i could see that because you know you you don't get a lot of their like internal stuff and you're riding shotgun with these like naive people and so they're even more as as characters susceptible to that stuff too and so it's like you're just kind of um, absorbing that with them but that's one of those things it's like this is why when i think about characters that i care a lot about do you mean like they're characters who like i follow Followed them through these things. Do you know what I mean? And that like I care about a carrion because I I went there with him to on these some of these stuff. I don't care about him because I heard about the things he did but in the past. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And, and he he has that weight, but but not really. And that's kind of one of the weird things about finding out more about these characters is that they're like these big historic characters, and then you meet them and you're like, wow, they're pretty cold-blooded. And I think uh, you know, what's her name? Galel is trying to, you know, be a more altruistic type ruler like we're not going to just do all the shady um, political killings that you guys did or you at least have to ask me and there's all this stuff uh that that actually you know they still basically are doing the 
the same playbook as before ultimately. And so they're not great guys. And that's the problem with peeling back the surface on like these legends is that you get to see the kind of dark underbelly of that too. Absolutely. And that you see how, you know, which is good. It's complicating their legacy, you know, about like, look how great the old guard are, but like, actually are they that great? You know? And is this, this element of history where we're embellishing and we're creating our own image of it, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think there's like a through line about all the books that talk about the empire just are kind of commentaries about how, you know, ultimately it's, it's this kind of like self-sustaining thing because it's, it's basically undergirded by like self-interest, right? And everybody is just doing what's best for their self-interest. And that ends up like perpetuating. And, and so you end up getting all these folks who, who just maybe are good intention and maybe, you know, we have all these rosy memories, quote unquote, of them, but they're really just uh, kind of uh, pragmatists and actually, you know, pretty, pretty dark characters too. <laughs> So sometimes, I, you know, there's the, these different lenses that you can, like, look through life and existence and humanity through, right? And, like, I love reading about gender and sex and, mm. like, thinking about queer thought and how the world can be viewed and framed this way, you know? And, like, it, it's all it's all about this in a way, you know? Yeah. Or it's all about race or it's all about religion. It's, you know, it's all – a lot of these frames end up being big, really heady things, right? Yeah. And I think about – these books, you know, I, you know, in some ways I, I wouldn't want to reduce it just down to this, but you know, they definitely a lot of times would posit that like, let's really look at this through the lens of empire and like, uh, colonialism and economics do you mean Mm -hmm. and how ultimately these cycles of power influence us you know and you know it's it's you know it's very interesting very thought-provoking and it's definitely interesting to come back to the seat of the malazan empire which um you know i don't know imperial politics and we're building towards the end of the end of the, the to to the ending here you know imperial politics at the start of gardens of the moon to me, you're like, man, this is really important. This is what the book's about. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And, um, you know, it, it is absolutely not what those 10 books are about and are not that important to the series overall, you know, which is, you know, in some ways, you know, was something we, sh- we should get into in a second. But I think it just goes to show how I really appreciate it. And I think it's what I got me so excited about this book the first time I read it. Yeah. Really coming back to the empire and yep. telling a story about the empire, you know? Oh, yeah. At its heart. Totally. And how it got started and what it stands for. And I think, you know, the Lacine stuff too is like absolutely. I mean, I, I, same thing as Malik Rell. I read this book and I love Lacine as a character even more, not because I like her again as a person, but just like the conflict, the, the tragedy of her, you know, because I think there was a lot of ways that she. I, I agree. She's a bit of a tragic character. Self sabotage, you know, she couldn't muster the kind of interpersonal side that, that like, you know, she kind of signed her own death warrant in a lot of ways, quote unquote, by just, you know, in in terms of her power and stuff, by just, you know, not reaching out, not doing it the right way, not bringing people along. And she had like maybe more altruistic intentions. That's debatable. But she's just this kind of hard ass that lacks the 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 kind of leadership skills to to get people to want to come along. And they realize even too late. And it's just really sad. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think the reason I, you know, obviously she does a lot of bad stuff, but, like, she's somewhat a self-defeating character, right? And I think it's somewhat a question that gets asked by the series as a whole, like, are we inherently self-defeating? Is humanity self-defeating? Like, can can we actually overcome any of this? And, like, obviously, the scene 
self-sabotage, as you said, is, you know, ultimately leads to her death. And this brings me to, you know, the Lacine piece of it, you know, which I think I read this book in in integrated into my main series read. And mm. I believe it was primarily driven for this reason that um you know, if you didn't read this book, you would find out Lacine's dead in book nine. Yeah. Um, and I understand that, uh, I don't know, I didn't encounter it that way. I, But I guess you did. So I would be wondering, I wonder how you felt about learning Lacine's death that way. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't take anything away from the books for me for or from this book, you know, on my first read through, even though I was already done with the book of the fallen, I still, you know, I felt like it was an exploration or like a fleshing out. Like, that's kind of how I came into this book series was knowing that that's what it was going to be, was like exploring some of the stuff that happened along the way, like taking branches off the main trunk of the story is what I thought I was doing. And so. I I still totally um, appreciated it. And I always liked that part of like the earlier books too. Like when Callum kind of went to her in Deadhouse Gates or when you find out more about the um, Dujek one-arm outlawing quote unquote in Memories of Ice. Like I, I liked finding out more about the conflict there. And, and so, and I think she could have, you know, totally done it different. She could have brought the old guard along. Like she could have consulted. Like she could have potentially, even if you go back to Night of Knives, right? Like, there's a potential that, you know, Dancer and Kalenved had bigger fish to fry. Like if she would have done it the right way, they might have just gave her the keys. You know what I mean? And so it's just that makes it even more sad because like she could have brought everybody along. I don't know. And they would have been unstoppable like that, too. If you can you imagine, you know, on the Seven Cities Rebellion or or the Ginnabacchus com- campaign, if they had, you know, talk and Choss and Amaron and everybody on side and to even and they never, you know. They would have been unstoppable. So when you read Dust of Dreams, though, and you the, you learn, bum, Lacine's dead, da, 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 ba, ba, what a, yeah. what a twist. Like, how did this news hit you on that read? In terms of Dust of Dreams, because I, you know, that was a shock because you're just uh, going into it totally blind. So, see, and that's exactly how I imagine. Like, I don't know. Part of me, I think the reason I loved this book so much the first time I read it is because I was like, man, it's incredible to see all these characters I know to get to, oh my God, Lassine's dead, you know? Yeah. And like, it's like I was, I don't know, it felt so prescient to the main 10. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I really don't know what it would be like to read the main series without it. I understand that a lot of people feel like, you know, it doesn't disrupt that, but yeah. I don't, I don't know. I feel, I know really, of- I feel legitimately torn about the, that, this question. Yeah, I can see a huge case for it, honestly. Like, I, I know a lot of folks are really ardent supporters of mixing them in, you know, trying to in publication order or whatever to try and or doing the ultimate order in mixing or whatever, because specifically uh, because of that. And I, I, you know, that's not how I did it, but it wasn't because of like a militant um, feeling one way or the other. I just didn't even I stumbled onto the book of the fallen um, just searching for books to read kind of honestly. And then I found out about the second. Yeah, part of me really feels like it'd probably be better to read them afterwards, you know, but the only one I think really could be worth it is to read this one integrated into the main 
one. You know, Knight of Knives, I feel like you cannot read. I don't really think there's that's prescient at all. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, but no, and this one has foreshadowing for like a lot of like the Toll the Hound stuff too, even, you know, and there's a lot of yeah, cool definitely. stuff um, with, you know, the whole traveler storyline and everything. And so there's, uh, I, yeah, I can totally see it. And I, I, you know, might even try and do that. I'm trying to like get through my chapter by chapter videos on the channel, but when I do a reread in the future, I might try and do it mixed in like publication order or try and do that ultimate one. Yeah, we'll see. So uh, we'll, we'll probably do some overall bigger thoughts near the end, but uh, let's get to some comments. We, sh- we asked we asked out for yeah. questions from the community on the Malzahn subreddit and uh, on discords. And let's just get into some of them. So. Let's start with this. This is from Dashbones on Discord. How do you feel Ice and Erickson handle the relative Bible of the Malazan world? Since they both created it, there would obviously be a large, consistent model. But in terms of shared characters, timelines, the magic, etc., I haven't read much of Ice's work yet, so I can't come up with many examples. But I have seen people lament how certain characters are handled different ways between the two. Yeah, I think that that I've heard that as well, that they're handled differently. I kind of approach the characters, and I, or maybe my interpretation is that there's some that are kind of distinctively Ice characters and then some that are like distinctively Erickson and I didn't get a bad vibe when I see him try and do some of the Erickson stuff. I don't know. I've, I've definitely read that like in comments and on the, the forums and stuff. But for me, that wasn't one of the issues that I had. I think like it's cool to go and see Decem fleshed out more than you kind of get in a story that's from Erickson. Yeah, I I agree. And I, I don't really feel like there's a huge difference. The difference that I think does exist is just the huge difference in tone between the two authors. Yes. I just so I think I think the characters are pretty similar. They're kind of just viewed through different lenses and different styles of stories is kind of my two cents. Yeah. And you don't get a lot of internal dialogue or monologue from the like big, huge characters anyway. Or like you said earlier, usually seeing them through somebody else's eyes. So that's not one of the I couldn't put my finger on a character that really, bug you know, that where that issue bugged me. I agree. Here's one from Gadriel on Reddit. Way, way too many plot lines. Some of them had little or no payoff to, which is frustrating. I don't think Elselmont had found his voice yet when he was writing this book. So a lot of the characters have little dimension to them. Urko feels incredibly unlike the Urko we meet in the main books, so much so I was expecting a reveal that he was someone else. <laughs> Sunning Squad in Linghang and afterwards was pretty good, and those characters actually felt distinct and interesting. More time with them would have probably increased my enjoyment. Ditto for Relish and the Wiccans. The Kyle plot line is just awful, though I ended up really liking the character in later novels. But there's so little time afforded to this story could have been really interesting but it suffers for it greatly something something that started in return of the crimson guard and continued in later books i could not keep the guard members straight other than bars mm. we first meet in the erickson books fully agree fully agree a lot of, a ne- lot of crimson guard yeah never remembered a crimson guard member name i mean i know some of them but they're just so you know i don't know it's somewhat like the soldiers' names. By the when we get to Crippled God and we just have so many soldiers, sometimes I just can't keep them straight. You know? Yeah. There's some like favorites that you know for sure, and you know who they all are. I think that would be like a huge trivia question. Is like, what was Twisty's original name? He was like one of the, <laughs> you know what I mean? But there's like just legit. You could you could do it for so many of these people, and it's like there's just uh, it's just you lose track. 
There are so many of them introduced so quickly and without characterization that they might as well be nameless. This improves a bit later in later books, but I still found myself asking, who is this again, a few times. They probably are interesting enough to get their own series, but I think cramming so much else into this book hurts their story a bit. I did warm up to the Esselman series later, but I will admit I almost didn't bother continuing after this one. Once he worked on his writing and started narrowing down the scope of his later books, I thought they read much better. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I can say that I enjoyed reading it on a reread a lot because I wasn't, you know, suffering from some of those things that folks are talking about in these comments because you kind of have more of a sense. You don't have the anxiety of trying to, like, figure out who these folks are and what are their motivations. And you can really like, you know, I was appreciating all the little side stuff and there's still a lot that's kind of he leaves out to go over in the rest of the four books, which I think is really fun too but but i will say that it's actually has a, a high value of rereadability because there was a lot more to get out of it once you weren't worried about kind of figuring out what was going on yeah i agree because i don't know i actually think it's pretty i don't know if anything i think i enjoyed it more the first time i read it i don't know maybe i just maybe i just enjoyed being i was like i was in the woods for most of it so maybe i was longing for the well, and you were in the heart of it, right? Because you read it contemporaneous. So you were still trying you very much in the kind of. You know, exactly. I, I, I really was a page turner when I read it the first time. And I, I think it touches on an interesting point. Something I was thinking about reading this this time through is, you know, the two of them p- pace their chapters so differently. Yeah. I feel like, you know, when it comes to Esselmont, you know, some of these chapters, you really will follow a character almost the entire time or like from a plot line from like A to B to C to D to E to F, where in Erickson, you just get usually a larger swath. And sometimes, you know, you're only with a character for like two paragraphs and they're yeah. just going to do one thing or it's just about a thought or about a mood or something. And you just and, figure out who the character is and then you jump to another character. <laughs> yeah, we're like here. It's like, you know, the first chapter, you know, like take the introduction to Kyle, you know, you start yeah. with learning who he is. He goes up the spire. They kill the thing. The, the sentence uh, ostrich there. And it's like, bah, bah, bah. it's so long. And like, I don't know, like super long sequences in Erickson's thing are like maybe four pages. And then I'm like, whoa, Steve, you're really getting out of hand here, aren't you? You know? Yeah. Although it does make for uh, for challenges when I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to finish up this chapter. And they're like, you know, 50, 60 page long uh, chapters, too. So it's it's pretty chunky. Yeah, it's it's just uh, it's not like one's better than the other. It's just, you know, it's just different. You know, and that last comment mentioned Lee Hang, which actually we kind of skipped over uh, accidentally. Uh, What did you I feel like the squad and Lee Hang, some of my favorite characters and the Rolandra stuff absolutely fucking rules. Some of the best fucking stuff. I love Rolandra's. Yes. over over the moon about this. I was going to say character, but that's, I don't, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I love that part too. And I love the whole deal with uh, Rel and the tragic ending and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I love the Storo character too. For me, that's like one of these kind of um, moral center, like reluctant hero who's just like, doing the right thing, living according to a code, no matter what. And he's not in it for the glory and stuff. I just love those. You know, that's a like fiddler type, you know, temper character, but of actual consequence with this squad and trying to, you know, but then at the same time, unleashing a demon on these armies. Yeah, I guess I kind of got I, I, I just think the Roland just like so good. And the reveal, oh, the reveal. Um, But um, <laughs> I guess I should have asked, though, to kind of loop back to the scene thing. Do you think this is like a fitting ending to her story? 
I feel like it was a cool ending for her because she kind of gets some, you know, we're trained basically to not be that sympathetic to her the whole time. You know what I mean? And and she kind of gets some. You, you kind of can walk away looking at her in a bit of a different light. You get to see some of her just, you know, super G'd up skills and just crushing Crimson Guard avowed barehanded, you know, bare feet. Just uh, I, I I like that part of it. And so I I think it's it's a, a fun ending for just such a complicated character because she doesn't fully get redeemed. You know what I mean? But you do end up having like more of a huh, like respect for her. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, part of me feels like I don't feel this way when I'm reading it. I really loved reading it. But part of me feels like it's kind of an uh, a bit ignominious for her to kind of just die off screen in the main series. And then here she is. She just, you know, Malakwell hires this assassin. And, you know, this is what we do, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't really I'm not a huge fan of the what do you tie Radock or whatever. Yeah, that's her name. That's um, her name storyline or I just I don't like her that much as a character and she's you know the the daughter of all the stuff that we saw who you know Vorkin's a total G in the books too Um, but yeah it it didn't necessarily have that same satisfying thing but there's no doubt that you know um, Vorkin's daughter would be G'd up it's just that yeah Um, and just that she was conspiring with Malik real Yeah, I don't know. I like it. I just think part of me feels like it's a little bit. But I think that's just part of me that's still like from Gardens of the Moon that still is like kind of invested in the series and story as a series about imperial politics, which it's not. Yeah. Yep. And and that's like kind of one of the the geopolitical undercurrents of this book that's like not really part of all the. The other stuff and it's so funny too because she thinks that you know all this heinous stuff happened and her mom's like literally just asleep in the in the doorway of that house still at this yeah. like time of the books i cannot wait to get to toll the hounds but we're, we're we're moving on to bone hunters soon so that should be fun that's a great book yeah i have i've been thinking i i you know there's the same i'm just at this point now where i'm so thoroughly finished thinking about Midnight Tides that I because I just spent months thinking about it. Yeah. So like I'm now fully ready to move on. Go to. It's kind of nice that the books are so separate from one another. Yeah. Because I feel like it really just it gives me. I'm like really ready to go to Seven Cities and get back with those characters and do book six. So I'm stoked. Yeah. No. You're, I'm uh, as a fan excited to hear that. Awesome. Anyway, let's uh, let's kick it back to some comments here. Uh, I want to shout out Dr. Unknown Soldier. Uh, said I hated the book. My view is possibly tainted. And then he wrote like a huge essay, you know, great, great write up. And he, at the end, he said, TLDR, the writing is good. The fights felt alive. I really liked some characters like Jumpy and the Hen yes. Garrison, but I really hated how Ice stacked the deck against the Empire and then had it win in the end. I understand it was designed to be close, but this was reversed rather than just close. I think... You know, the essay in short is really just about how he about this feeling, you know, that he didn't feel like Esselmont wrote it fairly. What do you think? 
I think this is a testament to Malik Rell. I think he wrote it specifically that way because he wanted to show the master conniver who kind of, like I said, he used the threat of the old guard and like the consolidation of all these old city states as like the way to undermine Lacine. But then that was the whole thing with Bug, right, is that he was helping the Crimson Guard show up so that that could kind of be like this unifying external threat. So you first like point the guns in, then you point the guns out kind of thing. And and that was what like, you know, helped him maneuver into all of his shady finagling. So I, for me, I think that that's exactly what he was you know, trying to do was get the old guard going and stoke up this this stuff to totally maneuver himself higher. He's selfish and he's good at it. Yeah, man. Do you think the gist all is going to come out soon? I think it's supposed to come out this year because I already had it pre-ordered to come on November 21st or something of last year and they canceled the pre-order. But I think that was just like because of publishing delays. I think it's done. So we should get it this year and I'm going to well, drop everything and read it. Um, Here's a comment I had kind of mentioned earlier. Circle Dog says it never felt gritty or really even gory, even the gory bits. Esselman has a few issues as a writer, but one of them is that he somehow makes everything feel in soft focus. Somehow even when writing scenes that should be serious and traumatic, they feel PG-13. What do you think? Uh, sounds like somebody who read the Erickson books first and, you know, just that's the, you know, I think there's a level, a different writing style that, you know, they just don't have that kind of same heavy feel like I was saying before where you walk away going, oh my gosh, like you have this like shell shock about yourself. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far to say PG-13, no, but, no. but I do, I do generally agree with the vibe. And I also think it's what you're saying. I don't really know if it, I just think it has to do with a matter of tone. I, it's just going to come down to that for me, you know? Yeah, totally. It's just a different writing style and tone and, you know, like a uh, pace, like you said. So I think it's just, you have a certain expectation when it has the malice and or you know the Malazan brand attached to it then you think like kind of folks who come in after reading the main 10 they just have an expectation of what that means and this is different i really enjoyed problem this is from liam jackson 2578 i really enjoyed probably the last third or so of the book up until that point i found myself really struggling to connect with all of the different plot lines and characters but when they all drew together i found myself unable to put the book down love the podcast by the way on my face for sure thank you for listening and i gotta say i fully agree with liam here i I think the ending of this book absolutely rips, is my yeah. opinion. And once like we're on Lee Hang, we're on the planes, all of the forces have been amassed. And although this is just one of those things, like I said, I think the book's a bit overstuffed, which I stand by. Yeah. But I think it's that's it's one of these things that gets to when you get to an ending like this, like there are a lot of pieces in play and it feels really great seeing them all to collide together. Yep. And I think... You know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of these Malazan endings are about big convergences in a way. It's like yeah. these times where these disparate plot lines are all going to intersect and we all see, oh, my gosh, this is why we were following some random thing. This is how it all makes sense, you know. And I think Esselbot still pulls it off pretty great here, even though it, it, he does it in less of a time than some of those longer uh, Book of the Fallen entries. Yeah, definitely. And I think you get to that third book within a book or whatever, and you're you're all in, right? And it kind of finishes itself because you're, and I felt like I kind of crammed in the last bit and didn't read, you know, start reading this early enough to get done for this. But then once I got to the end, like you said, or got to that third book, it was easy to just cram the rest in because it is is just such a fast pace. A lot of the reveals have happened where you're finally connecting the dots on like who the um, wild man is and stuff like that. You know what I yeah. mean? And you're like, oh, okay. Um, so again, that kind of figuring out or remembering and, and stuff. And you're just like, holy cow. And, and 
even though it was like, I think 12 or 13 individual like POVs or storylines or whatever that we're kind of like following, it really was just like four or so bigger arcs, you know, this like kind of Italian league old guard piece, the traveler piece, and then the kind of crimson guard stuff. So to see that all come together was pretty, pretty cool. And just, you know, it, it, uh, it tells itself. It was great. Yeah. I mean, and I'm of the opinion, this battle of Lee hang the battle on the plains, uh, <laughs> yeah. whatever you want to call it. I feel like it's like climax, Denouement equal to some of the main series. Do you know what I mean like I yeah. would rather read this ending than the ending of Gardens of the Moon or something? Do you know I mean like I feel like the ending here just rips on a lot of levels? You know? Oh yeah, so much cool stuff and like you know you have like the epic battle. That's what I'm saying. This book like cries out to be adapted or or somehow like animated or something because you have like the big battle aspects. You have the individual like um, duel type scraps that happen. A couple big ones that are really good. You know, and then like the full on military clashes so there's just a lot to love the book's just a lot of fun you know that's my opinion i had a lot of fun reading the book you know it's just that's why i love it you know and just 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 nothing but good vibes i know i said i think i said a bunch of critical stuff but i'm really vibing with the book in a major way it was a a fun entry and i think you know from from night and eyes which is kind of like a prequel this is more like the meat and potatoes of just the actual you know whole kind of malazan universe so it's uh uh, it's it's really cool. There's a lot of fun stuff and and a lot of cool, awesome characters and some really critical, like substantial stuff, you know, that happens that are like, you know, defining events. Yeah, I definitely agree. So in closing here, you know, I know, you know, what's tough is we're not going to be able to get to everything in these shows during yeah. the miniseries, you know, but we're trying we're taking our best. We're taking our best shot. <laughs> um, but I think for me, revisiting this book was was a great time and i i don't know part of me some days thinks i would rather read esselmont than erickson you know it's a good way to cleanse your palate i think that's the other cool thing about the way i did it you know is that you read the book of the fallen and then you can kind of jump into night and eyes you're interested to like investigate some of these legendary characters but it reads quicker it's faster paced it doesn't have that kind of weight to it where you feel like oh um and so that's that's the other thing about doing it that way yeah i mean i don't know i think you know i once again that creates this dichotomy between the two which i'm trying to get away from but i think it's just sometimes because of running the show and how my life is you know erickson often ends up becoming the main thing i'm reading do you know what Mm -hmm. i mean Yep. And just sometimes just always being in that zone is just, you know, it, it can be it can tire you out, you know? Yeah, um, it's heavy. Yeah, yeah. And so I think sometimes when it comes to reading these Esselman books, I'm like, you know, I'm feeling loose. I'm feeling spry, baby. You know, yeah, I'm like, dude. yeah, like, tell me about the man jackal. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Like, lay it on me. You're talking to Mr. Lasers and Fireball. So I feel that, you know, there's a lot to love just about the kind of fun and badassery of it all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think I really I just. I really enjoy this book and I guess I also feel like I really love how integrated it is into the yep. main series in a lot of ways and kind of closes off some of those plot lines that you know don't don't I don't know you don't really see through to the end by the time you get to Crippled God. Yep. It had its own unfinished storylines but it has a lot here um, that is again of consequence and foreshadows some stuff and again you get some closure on some key storylines and you get some fun cameos and stuff so I, I I love it on a kind of um, where it falls in the broader, you know, 
arc and lore and history of the of the stories, but also just for the the fact that it was an enjoyable like reading experience. Here's one pet peeve. I know we're trying to wrap up, but you know sometimes they and Erickson does this too. You know they'll be they'll they'll do this stuff where they'll like it's kind of referencing stuff us as the reader knows or like mm-hmm. the fans know. It's like. Yep. Yeah, they said they were going off to this like crazy continent called Letharis. I've never even heard of it, bro, but I guess it is. And it's like, I'm like, okay, guys, I get it. You know, I, I get what you're doing. I know, you know, and yeah. sometimes I find it to be a little much, you know. It's a tool that that was used. I didn't find it that much in this one, but there's definitely times when you're like, guys, that's this, you know. And I thought like in Night of Knives, especially when like Temper was supposed to be the demon and stuff, there's multiple times where you're like, you're not connecting the dots, but we know that that's that. <laughs> Yeah, I just sometimes it feels like kind of winking at the camera too much for me, you know? Yeah, yeah. But. He breaks down the the fourth wall in a lot of ways, but that's one of the the ways that he does it too. But um yeah, man, just fun stuff. And I'm I'm also excited because, you know, we're going to talk about this more when we get to Stone Wielder, but um mm. I would say and this and this is my impression and, and is that this is the last of these Esselmont books that is so directly tied into the main series. Um, yeah, I think in terms of like the plot line of the, the main story arc of the 10. Um, but I think there's and I don't want to ruin your experience, but there's still a lot of, you know, read and find out elements that I think are going to be fun for us to talk about. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting into Stone Wielder because I think when I read it the first time, I was definitely frustrated because coming off Crimson Guard, yeah. I was like, this story is so uh I was gonna say essential. That's how I feel. So yeah. essential to the the those imperial politic plotline brought up yep. in the main series that I was like, man, this is gonna keep being in. It. It's gonna keep just being like following up on these things. Yeah. And Stone Wilders was just a bit different than that. And I think I'm more excited to tackle these books as I said on their own things and kind of not see them as, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no. And I think that's uh, uh, really cool because like this, the Crimson Guard stuff is a total side story. And I think the Grey Mane is even more like kind of a side thing, um, even later on in the books, right? Like it's no, totally. Of- Grey Mane's just like, we're doing our own thing. You know, yeah. we're fully doing our own thing over here, you know? Yeah. So now he's a, he's a cool character too. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Iskar. Uh, it was great to knock out the second one of these. So much fun. Thank you for having me. You can find Iskar at youtube.com slash Jarak. He has a Discord. They talk about stuff and he puts, uh, well, stuff, these books, of course. And yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, he puts out videos once, uh, once uh, you know, once a week-ish, you know, something like that. When I'm not bogged down with work, I'm behind. But yeah, that's the goal, at least one or two a week. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, we're 10 Very Big Books at Gmail and Twitter. We're probably going to have, uh, me and Iskar were just talking about our schedule. We're probably going to get Stonewheeled out in about two, three months, something like that. We're keeping yep. it a little loose, you know. It's it's a side project for both of us. So, But um, we're definitely continuing on to uh, Stormwall. And last thing, I wanted to shout out uh, Scout at HumbleGoat on Twitter and coffee.com slash HumbleGoat, who made our wonderful art Yes. Um, yeah, it looks great. I love the Night of Knives one, and this one is, is also just absolutely ripping. So, uh, loved her art and love working with her. So, uh, that's going to do it for us on the show today. Goodbye, everybody. See ya. 
Hello, everybody. AJ here, producer and editor of 10 Very Big Books. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Discussions of the Malazan Empire. Special shout out as well to Iskar Jarek for agreeing uh, to come along on this journey with Peter. It's always a joy to have him on the show. You can check out Iskar on YouTube, youtube.com slash Iskar Jarek. He also has a Discord server, subreddit, Facebook page, Patreon, and merch store, all of which will be linked in the show notes. If you'd like to join 10 Very Big Books Discord, you can head on over to bit.ly slash VBB Discord. That's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D, Discord. That link will also be in the show notes along with the link to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 10 Very Big Books, if you would like to support the show there. This series is made possible by our wonderful patrons, so thank you all so, so much for allowing us to do more and continue to grow the show. And of course, I want to thank my good friend Bokeh for allowing us to use his song Winter off his new release demos and singles 2016 to 2020. You can follow him on Twitter at Brendan Bigley and check out his podcast that I also produce over on IntoTheCast.online. And finally, a huge gigantic thanks to Brackenfur apologist Scout Wilkinson for making our absolutely incredible episode art. You can check out more of her work on Twitter at Humble Goat and on her coffee page, ko-fi.com slash Humble Goat. All of those links, of course, will be in the show notes. And Pete and Iskar will be back in a couple of months with the next discussions of the Malazan Empire where they'll be talking about Stonewielder by Ian Cameron Esselmont. I'll talk to you then. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>